and welcome back, imposters, to episode number 19 of the You're Not Qualified podcast. I am your host, Courtney Heater, and today we have a very timely episode and amazing guest. But before we get into that, I am stoked to announce that we are coming in on the 20th episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast next week. Uh, You know, this is episode number 19, so obviously, but just calling it out. And then we have five more after that of season one. So five more episodes left of season one of the podcast. Season one's last episode will be on April 28th of 2022. And then season two will kick off on August 11th. Season two will be the same theme and a little different Uh, just a little different, but more to come on that. We're still going to talk to people who are traditionally not qualified for the things that they're doing, and they're making amazing waves in the world, battling their imposter monsters, just getting after it. We are still going to keep with that theme. It feeds my soul. I am a one-woman show over here, and I need to start training heavily for some mountaineering trips that are coming up in the summer, Uh, and I need to also keep up with my day job. And my dad is visiting, so the three-month hiatus is for a little bit of extracurriculars that are going to be very time-consuming, but I love this podcast, and I'm going to be back in August. I've discovered that this is a very important part of my life, this podcast is, and I don't really want to let it go. So it's just going to be a seasonal break. I know that podcasters do that, and I'm going to be back, and maybe I'll sprinkle in a little bit of something-something in the middle of all of it. We'll see. And of course, I'll keep up on socials. You can't get rid of me completely. I'm sorry. But please mark your calendars for August 11th when season two drops. It's going to be a banger, as the kids say. Or is it fire? Look what I have created! I have made fire! I have made fire! Or is it lit? Or is it... Did they just say warm? Ooh, it's going to be warm. Who knows? I'm not a... Not a Gen Zer, but today we are talking with Jeff Nosanov, who is producing a film on stolen German citizenship with no prior film production experience. We talk about those people who now have German citizenship reinstated via their ancestry to Germany, what that means how this film brought him closer to his ancestors, and how the invasion of Ukraine happening right now as we speak horrifically relates to the Second World War. It's a really moving conversation. We dive deep. It's heavy at times. The topic lends to that, but alas, it represents the time we live in. We, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to share our feelings. We need to get it out there. We need to scream about injustices. We need to be angry. We need to talk about it. I can't wait for us to dive in to this conversation. And we also have five more episodes after this together until the break. Season one ends, but let's not think about that right now. All we're thinking about is you and me, and Jeff, and German citizenship that was stolen. All right. Are you ready to meet him? I can't wait for you to meet him. Let's go. You wouldn't match by a chance, would you? Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, and it's great to be here. And, And when I saw your podcast listed, I thought, what a great concept and a nice message or a nice way to send a, a positive message out to the world to people that try new things. And so I just love that. I'm, I'm very happy you invited me to join. Yeah, thank you for that. It's a little bit of uh, my baby passion project these days. And you know all about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you are producing a film about those yeah. who lost their German citizenship during World War II, which is a story that I had no idea about, a story that really needs to be told I'm sure a lot of people don't know that history. So tell us why you're unqualified to do this in particular. Sure. I'm trying to produce a a professional film to to get on Netflix or a streaming platform or or Mm. some other distribution. And I'm unqualified because 
I've never done it before or anything remotely close to it. And that's really that simple. I love the, the Netflix. That's, that's like, that's a big dream. I love that. Actually, I don't know if it's difficult to get on Netflix. I assume it is. What I'm learning is that it's actually a great time to be trying to, to become a filmmaker because all the streaming platforms are so competing desperately for content. But I'll let you know if I actually succeed in doing that. It's, okay. But that's what, I'm, that's what I'm told. It's a good time to be trying to do this, at least. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. Could you tell us what the film is about and the inspiration yeah. behind it? Yeah, so the film is about a very obscure portion of the German constitution that was written in the late 40s and early 50s after World War II. And that, that obscure provision known as Article 116, it, it basically says that if the Nazis took the citizenship of your family or you in, in the, between 1933 and 1945, which was during which millions of people were killed, obviously, and hundreds of thousands had their citizenship removed by a series of laws, a series of proclamations. If, if that affected you or your family, you can apply to the German government and get your citizenship back. And if you're a descendant of, of a person to whom that happened, you, you can get it back basically through all living generations. And in my case, that's my mom's parents to whom that happened in the, in the 30s. And, and my mom began the process in, in mid-2020. And that, that applies to her, myself, and my two kids. And when she told me about it, I, I just was fascinated because, because even as a person of Jewish descent, I had never heard of this and no one I knew had ever heard of it. But the more I dug into the history of it, I became fascinated by all of the different things it represents and the sort of many layers that, 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 are, that, that are there in this bureaucratic process that has been around for 70 years at this point. Is it only the German Jewish people? who had their citizenship revoked? Not only, but mostly. Okay. Uh, there were lots of other people that the Nazis considered undesirable, but the vast majority are, are Jewish families, yeah. Okay, and it's those now, those parents of the people are in their 60s and 70s. So my grandparents to whom the, the citizenship laws applied, or the, 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 the rescinding of the citizenship laws applied, they were in their, they were in their teens in the 30s, my mom is in her early 70s. But because the, the period during which the citizenship was taken away from people was so long, it was almost a whole generation. It was 33 to 45. There are people who are in their 90s who, to whom this directly happened, who are, who are a little younger than, than the, the earlier, the people that happened to on the early side in the early 30s. But part of the journey we've been on in interviewing people for the film is seeing that at every generation, it, this means something completely different. And that's one of the most interesting things about it so mm -hmm. far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because your family, I'm sure, talks about it, or maybe not, maybe because, and I know I would love to get in further in a little bit to intergenerational transfer of trauma, because that's along these yeah. lines. But so does your mom talk about what her grandparents' well, story were, or her parents' story was? I'll, I'll get to my mom. My, my grandparents never talked about it when my mm -hmm. mom was very young, it, it, apparently pretty common that the people who actually survived, no matter what horrors they went through, they, it was very common for them to not talk about it at all because no matter what they went through, they at least survived. So they didn't feel like their stories were special enough to be told. And that, and they didn't want to relive it. Yeah. This is at least, this is what the, the literature shows about that generation. Now that's not true of everyone. And we, for example, we interviewed one gentleman who's in his nineties has spent much of the last 70 years talking about it, but, but by and large, people didn't talk so much. And my mom grew up with this mystery surrounding her parents that was never discussed. And during the course of, of the filming we've done so far, lots of memories have come back to her of her childhood in the fifties and, and hear, overhearing partial conversations that were stopped when she entered the room and, and things like that. Mm. So actually it's been incredibly valuable for me to see my mom, not exactly find closure, but for mysteries that have endured for her entire life to shed some light on, on them for her. And uh, as an example, literally just today, since we, you and I spoke last, uh, a friend of mine who speaks German translated a document I found in my research that's at the German archive. That's actually the, the personal declaration of 
of someone who knew my great-grandfather that was filed as part of my great-grandmother's reparations claim, which is a different process for reparations for the Holocaust. So quick note on these reparations that he's talking about. There are, it looks like, a few different kinds of reparations that fall under this. They are allocated to Holocaust survivors. One such reparation is called the Article II Fund. This one in particular was initiated during the reunification of East and West Germany in 1990. And it's just one of the many components of the German government's ambitious reparations program. This is coming from a website called qz.com. It's all for people who are directly victimized by the Holocaust. So imprisoned in concentration camps, it looks like. Of course, there's tons more to that. So I encourage you to look that up if you're at all interested. Uh, QZ.com is a place to start for at least one of the types of reparations that you can find for Holocaust survivors. But basically, this this declaration describes exactly what happened to my great-grandfather, who was in his 60s when my mom was a, a girl, little girl. And it it provided answers to things my mom has been wondering about for 60 years. Oh, my God. Na- namely, exactly what happened to my great-grandfather, her grandfather, on uh, the night he was taken by the Nazis in 1938. That's it turned insane. Out that, it turned out that the, the, one of the people who worked for the family in the 30s gave a declaration in the 50s to the, the reparations board that basically walked through the night he was taken and exactly what happened to him. And so it's been a remarkable journey on a personal and family level, and also on a larger level, looking at what nations do in the aftermath of, of such horrible tragedies. Yeah, it's just a, a, a fascinating thing to explore. You, 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 when I talk to people about it, a lot of them don't know that much about their own family history. and. Mm-hmm. In my case, it was because there was so much trauma there that no one talked about it. But I, I think people might be surprised at what their family history holds. And I found it very valuable to explore it. Yeah, personally. it brings you closer to your roots. It mm. brings you maybe even closer to your mother. You can have these really yeah. conversations. One of the most powerful things about growing up to me was seeing my parents as individuals on their own, as not just my parents, but people, and learning more about the things they went through, that just gives me a, a better understanding of them as people uh, beyond just the lens that I, that we all see our parents as when we're kids, which is they're just our parents. They have no lot. They have no other life. Of course, that's not true. So like I joke with my kids, like I say, I have, I do have a life outside of you. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? Whatever. Because of course, if you, as a kid, you, your parents are, are there for you and that's it. You know, that shows the connection of all of this, that, that this does propagate all the way down to my kids uh, yeah. who also are learning about their family history in, a, in an age-appropriate way, but are also going to have a connection to the nation of Germany that uh, they wouldn't have otherwise. Absolutely. And that's just perspective broadening. And a really important, a weird word, but a really integral part of the, the Jewish history too. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to mean something different to them the way, as we've seen, it means something completely different to every generation. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. One of the people we interviewed, actually, his, this is remarkable, his father was conscripted, basically. So his father, his Jewish family, his father was a butcher. And in 1932, he asked a non-Jewish girl out on a date. And for that, he was basically conscripted in 1932, that early. I wasn't sure exactly what conscription meant in this context. I should have asked in the moment, but looked it up now. And conscription is the mandatory enlistment of people in a national service, most often a military service. Uh, So he was conscripted into service for dating a non-Jewish girl. Also, just your little reminder to donate to Wikipedia. Okay, bye. And he was forced to build the roads at one of the major concentration camps before it was a concentration camp when they were building the, the physical infrastructure. And so this map, this was before any of the horrific things started happening. 
So he built part of it. And then because they had a distant relative in, in the United States, he was actually allowed to leave and emigrate. This was, this was before, this is when Germany was allowing the Jews to leave as a way of getting rid of them, as a way of, mm-hmm. of purifying Germany by kicking out the, the un, undesirable people. Anyway, so that guy, we interviewed his son who was in his 70s. His son went through the same process, got his citizenship, took his grandchildren. So it was like a sixth generation leap from the person whom the original, who the Nazis originally persecuted. And when he and he got his family to go visit Germany with their citizenship, so six generations later, and uh, in the film, or in the interviews, at least, it's, it's not a film yet, but in the interviews, he talked about his surprise as, as to how his grandchildren viewed their connection to this ancest- small ancestral town in Germany. That It's almost like the, the connection is stronger because of the tragedy. Yeah. It's not just that if not for the tragedy, they wouldn't have left Germany, which is true of my family and so many others. But just having been connected to history in that way creates a stronger connection than would otherwise just be one distant past here or distant ancestors. Yeah. And, and there's just so many layers. Yeah. 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 That's, and especially if they, especially if they lived it, but you also have to give grace to the way that other people want to process and sure. continue on with their life. So that's gotta be difficult. And it's just incredible to me that you have, the, it's almost you are brave enough to tell the story, but compassionate enough to allow it to take the form it's taking as you go through it. Because you're learning so much about your history and you're learning so much about all of this generational impact that it's had. So yes, you're telling the story of all of these German citizens that were ripped of a lot of their identity, but you're also able to put in a lot of personal aspects to it and a lot of almost like understanding Um, That's the goal. It's definitely not about my family. We we are interviewing my mom, but the goal is to be much broader than that. My hope is that if someone sees my name in the the credits, they will be surprised because they didn't realize that one of the producer's family members was interviewed. It's not about Mm. me. But actually that gets to the more of the pragmatic way, the pragmatic layer of how I actually am going about this. Recognizing I'm not qualified to do it. So I'm fortunate in this area that my wife's cousin is an experienced documentary filmmaker. And for 20 years, I've been pitching just terrible ideas to him because I generally like telling stories. And film is, I don't know, one of the most powerful mechanisms of doing that. Mm -hmm. So like for years, I've been sending him stuff. Let's make a show where people compete to build Ikea furniture the fastest. And he'll be like, yeah. I don't think we're going to do that, but keep them coming. Oh, you don't want to do that, boy. And so when my mom started the process, I learned about it. I said, look, this is my family history, so I can't really separate myself from how interesting I think it is. So what do you think? I'm biased that my own family history is interesting and my own family part in the in world history is interesting. But as the person, as he is the person who is experienced in identifying the stories that are worth telling in general, I came to him, I said, look, here, here's what's going on. And he stopped me and he said, this, this is a really interesting story. And so that was really, that was encouraging for me because there's two parts here, right? Like there's my family going through the process, which is completely separate from the telling a story about the process. But having been, having, being so deeply connected to it is really what gave me the idea that it's a story worth telling. And if you look around the world, mostly in Europe, at least as far as I know, there's other countries that have, that have a similar process to reclaim citizenship. Austria mm-hmm. has one, and Spain and Portugal. I believe in Spain, it goes back to the Crusades. If you were persecuted during the Crusades like four or 500 years ago, there's, some, there's something like something similar. But now that's a story. I, if I saw that documentary on Netflix scroll by, I would watch that. That's just like Same. super cool. But, but I don't have, but obviously that's not my family history. So I'm not the right person to tell that story. But getting to like kind of the practical level of someone listening to this who might want to do something that if they're not qualified for, I would say, I, I wasn't going to go grab a GoPro and start interviewing people and teach myself Adobe Premiere. I could, and in the past to do things I'm not qualified for, I've become an amateur level skilled at them, mm-hmm. but that's not how I wanted to do this. And I'm lucky that 
I had a family member who was open to, to talking to me. If, if a person doesn't have such a family member or like a built-in expert into their kind of immediate circle, it's really never been easier to find that kind of expertise in Facebook groups, meetups, uh, Craigslist. I mean, yeah, there's it's even hard. those. It's hard, but you can also just yeah. hire a freelancer on yeah. like on Fiverr or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's extremely hard, but like, like I also, I started two companies and the first one I started, I could raise venture capital. I wasn't really qualified to do that, but similar to finding, I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird task because there's certain projects when you start, you don't know how much work they'll take Mm -hmm. because you don't know. There's no linear measure of your progress. You could talk to a hundred investors for a year and get nowhere, but then the next day, the 101st person could be, and it's a frustrating work because you, you make zero progress other than getting better at your pitch. But if your pitch doesn't, isn't interesting to anyone, it almost doesn't matter that you're getting better at it. Mm-hmm. So, so what I've found in the things that I've done that I'm not qualified for, there has to be something rewarding in the effort, even if it's not successful. Yeah. And um, with this, it's the family link. Yeah. 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 And I'm lucky that I had the validation from my wife's cousin mm-hmm. early on. But even in other things I've done that I would qualify for without that, it's just, this is something I really believe in and I'm going to try. And if I try for a year and fail, well, that's okay. And, and you have to be of, of such personal value and importance that you don't mind. You know, it's paradoxical because you have to have the motivation to, do, to work really hard on it and, not, and maybe not get anywhere. But you also have to be okay with not getting anywhere. There's a couple of things here that I really want to double click on. So first him mentioning that he's done a lot of things that he's not traditionally qualified for. And if he wanted to do this a quicker way, he could have just picked up a GoPro and gone about in documentary style. So maybe interviewing people, but taking it a different avenue or hire somebody from a group that he found that could probably produce the documentary for him. But he he was fortunate to have somebody in his family that is a, a filmmaker already, so he could lean on them. But if he didn't have that kind of resource, then he could have gone to somebody else to outsource it. And there are levels of aesthetic, I think is better. Levels of aesthetic that you're trying to go for, right? Like it could be kind of cool in a GoPro format in terms of like a documentary style. And it also brings it to a different aesthetic feel if you have somebody that you can lean on that knows exactly what they're doing and make it a documentary by way of something that you might see on Netflix. So there are lots of ways to lean on somebody with more qualifications than what you have. And what you bring to the table is the creative lens. What you bring to the table is the story. So if you have something that you want to do, go for it and find somebody to help you. And the second little bit that he said there was he gave himself a timeline. He didn't say that directly, but he was like, okay, I can dedicate myself this, uh, my time to this for a year. And if that doesn't pan out, I gave it my best shot. I use this trick for a lot of different things in my life. I use it for if I can't figure out a difficult problem that I'm working on, I give myself a time allotment that makes sense for the problem, say 20 minutes might make sense for the problem. If I can't figure it out in that 20 minutes, I'm going to seek help because it's only detrimental to me that it's taking me longer to figure out this problem rather than move on and I can just as easily ask somebody. But something like going on a film endeavor and making your own film completely from the ground up when you've never done it before, a year seems reasonable. So if you want to do something and you're really worried that you're not going to get it, Give yourself a time limit. That could do a couple of things. One thing it could do is help you really buckle down and try to figure it out because you're knowing that you have a time limit, meaning if I don't get it by now, I will call it quits or I will pivot or whatever it is your agreement with yourself when you get to that time. And it makes it so it's not an indefinite amount of time that you're just scrambling. It's I'm going to give myself this time. If I don't figure it out, something else. If I don't figure it out, quit if I don't figure it out what have you and it's it's a great kind of hack for me for my brain where it's I can rely on it and also don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to pivot 
there's probably a million different versions of the Tesla car that was tried, right? And Elon Musk is is said to, this might not be a very good example, but it came off the top of my head. He is a brilliant mind that made something that is really efficient. Like the electric range in the Tesla was really impressive. And it's a luxury electric vehicle. Awesome. And he made it, but he also said he expected it to fail, but it made it. And he probably failed a lot, but he kept on going. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Put a time limit on it and understand the aesthetic that you're going for. Use those to start as your base and shoot for the moon. Exactly, because it's yeah. always any project that you're going to start yeah. that's absolutely a possibility. That's probably more of a possibility than yeah. success. Yeah. Yeah. And we in this film, we had uh, pretty good success during the pandemic talking to people. Everyone was at their computers all day. I was able to find people with similar family histories that we could interview. After the vaccines came out last year, we started getting people comfortable interviewing. Actually, we did a bunch of interviews before the Omicron variant, which turned out to be good timing. And we've, I wouldn't say we've been stuck since then, but we have enough material to make a, uh, to show, to, to basically try to raise money to finish it. Mm -hmm. So the and last that's time what we, we've been working on, yeah. Last time we talked that you had one investor that you thought would be a really beneficial one. Did that go through? It, it too soon to say the Fundraising is a very frustrating process, but can I say it costs money to create stuff at a it certain does. point? So and it's gotta, their gotta, money. You got to do it. Yeah. 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 I, it, yeah. It might be possible to, to do it out of pocket, but to do, to tell the story, like we could, we want to go to Europe and film a bunch of people. In theory, you could make a vacation out of it, but to do it at the level that we think the story is worth telling at, we really want it to be professional. 100%. It really is better to take longer and, and do it better than to do it with iPhones. And I mean, although you can do quite a bit with phones, obviously, better to do it all the way than part way just to do it. At least that's how we feel now. Yeah. Good luck with the investor. I hope it goes through. Thank you. <laughs> I would love to get into some of the, the darker aspects of your idea and especially mm. the story, because I feel like with war history, especially, we would be mm. remiss not to include the tragedy in the very dark times. And then after a few questions here, we can rise back out and talk more sure. light about like sure. film production, but the intergenerational trauma that brought up just a moment ago, can you speak to that a bit more and explain that? Yeah, one of the things that makes this subject so or relatively mysterious is that the survivors and the people who escaped the Holocaust had, look, I, I can't speak for them, but in, in, in remembering my grandparents, talking to my mom about her parents and, and interviewing people in this, with this shared experience, like I said, generally people didn't talk about it much because it was either so horrific that it really defined their kind of emotional bounds their emotional range for the rest of their life. At least this was true of my of my grandparents. And the stories I hear from my mom from her childhood is that they would have similar, they would have other survivors over as guests in the home as for socializing. And in one case, my mom walked into a room as a child and overheard that one of the other guests had been on Schindler's List and was one of those people, one of those children who, yeah. But and this is just a, a random living room in the 1950s in Los Angeles. This just actually blew my mind. When you hear him in the moment, he's like, yeah, I know. It's because my face was like, what the holy shit? That's insane. So I'm sure most of you have probably seen the film Schindler's List, and it's based on a nonfiction novel. There is a man in history, uh, Oscar Schindler, so he was a German industrialist and a member of the Nazi party. He is credited for saving the lives of 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. And he did that by employing them in his factories. So to save them from the persecution by the Nazis of the Jews. He literally saved them from deportation to Auschwitz, which was the largest camp complex the largest place where they would hold people and torture them and kill them. 
So it's absolutely nuts that he was in that situation with, like, even in the same room of somebody that was on the Schindler's list. Because it's not that many people in the grand scheme of things. 1,200 people is it's a lot of souls, right? But the Nazis killed 6 million Jewish people. So that the 1,200 and to be in their living room, it's just... It's absolutely incredible. But then when my mom entered the room, all the adults stopped talking. And I can speak for only speak for my own grandparents. When they came to the US, they were so they were so overjoyed to be American. They were it, it was this almost rose colored glasses history, pure joy of becoming American. So much so that they didn't even speak German at home anymore. Wow. And there's actually this is I also found this. There's a, they were interviewed. It was 1939. My, gray, my grandmother and her mother, they were interviewed in Chicago before they settled in Los Angeles. They were interviewed in Chicago by a radio station. And it was called uh, Interview with Two German Refugees. They had just come to the U.S. And it was like this, oh, you can imagine an old-timey radio host interviewing these two women from Germany, my, grand, my grandmother at 13 and her mom and I have a transcript of it oh my gosh and I spent a year not like full-time but a year looking at every radio archive in the country for a recording from 1939 a tall order for sure didn't find it apparently they recorded what few radio shows were recorded were recorded on these aluminum records basically and in World War II at this so in World War II the army the military asked for all those metal supplies to build fighter jets, the fighter mm-hmm. planes, not jets. Jets didn't exist yet. So I have this, this image in my head that probably is not true, but that my, my, grand, my grandmother's interview was recorded on a metal disc that was then taken and melted down and built into an aircraft to go fight the Nazis back where she came from that kicked her out. Oh. You probably heard we ain't in the prisoner-taking business. We in the killing Nazi business. Cousin businesses are booming. Oh, and that's probably not what happened, but I but love that I, though. Right? Isn't that <laughs> isn't that tempting to believe when I think there's no rec- even if there was a recording, that may have been what happened to it. And that's my that's gonna be my little imagination of what happened to the recording that probably never existed. But it's just the most but, beautiful, um, ironic full circle. Isn't it? And my grandfather, he fled at fifteen with his parents and that came to the US and then at eighteen went back to Germany in nineteen forty five to fight at the end of the war as a German refugee American soldier because he spoke German. Mm-hmm. So he was a radio operator who could understand the, the Nazi communications. And he actually got his American citizenship while he was back in Germany in the army. And apparently they had expedited it. So they, they basically he, they couldn't give him access to, to classified information, but he needed it because he was literally listening in on, he was eavesdropping on the Nazis at the end of the war. So someone said, we need to get this guy a citizenship so we can give him a clearance. So go do it or something, something yeah. like that. And that's how we got it. We, we also found that document. That's like the, it's almost like at the end of Indiana Jones and the last crusade, there's that warehouse full of stuff. It's like some obscure form that was created to allow for expedited citizenship during wartime of a, of a person in a war zone or something. All of this, they come to the U.S. and they, they settled here and my mom and her brother were born and they stopped talking about this stuff. And they didn't go back to visit Germany until the 60s, I think, 20 years later. Or maybe no, more than 20 years later, 25 wow. years later. Yeah. And I can say this from observing my grandparents that they were very... Strict is not exactly the right word, but they're very German, very strict. I'll just say strict. That's really the best word for it. And as a kid, I just remember thinking, man, my grandparents are strict. And not that they weren't loving, but they were strict. And uh, as an adult, and having, particularly having studied the general study of that part of history that any, anyone gets in this country, but particularly looking into the, my family's role in it, it's amazing they were able to function emotionally for 50 years after what they went through. And it's even more clear to me now why my mom, why they basically leaned on my mom to take care of them in a lot of ways. This is well before people who had been through horrific traumas got any kind of professional mental health counseling or anything like that. 
And even if they had been available, they probably would have said, well, I don't deserve it. At least I survived. Yeah. And, and there's people that didn't. So I don't yeah. have anything to complain about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really sad because it really affected them in their whole lives. And when my grandfather was in his late 80s, he started building model railroad, model railroad stuff in his living room. And he eventually built, he was an aerospace engineer, electrical engineer. So he built this incredible stuff by hand. And I'm not a model railroad guy, but I can appreciate craftsmanship and expertise and building things by hand that just doesn't, isn't done anymore. Eventually it took over the living room. It was like the size of two pool tables, <laughs> this whole setup. And I'm like, my grandfather's in his eighties and I wouldn't consider, I don't consider playing with toys, but I could see how someone would say he's playing with toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in, as part of my research into the family history, I discovered that he was very interested in trains as a child and loved taking trains in Germany when he was a child. And it may be a reach, but maybe by towards the end of his life, maybe he had some kind of, he got some kind of joy back from that childhood fascination with trains, but building them towards the end of his life with his decades of craftsmanship experience and knowledge. So all this stuff, I've come to see all this stuff, unfortunately, laughter he's passed and they passed, but uh, it does help put a lot of my childhood into more into a context that makes it make more sense. One funny story Mm -hmm. is that when my girlfriend, now my wife, first met them, she said, after we left, we've been there for a few hours and they get like serve cookies and, and tea in a kind of traditional way. So she looked at me, we got in the car. She said, why didn't you tell me they had German accents? <laughs> and I said, oh, I never noticed. And then I realized just how ludicrous of a thing that was to say, but that was just my experience. So why would I even mention it? It's just, it's just an odd, I don't know, but seeing one's parents as individuals to the next level of seeing one's grandparents as individuals. The, the grandparent relationship is usually different anyway, but to have them personify that connection to that part of history, that until three weeks ago, I wouldn't say it was ancient history, but wasn't directly relevant every day like it is now with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Just It was buried history. Yeah. yeah. It's almost, it feels far off, even though it was just in the 30s and 40s. It's like well, it wouldn't yeah, happen again. Right. And one of the reasons that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, is so jarring is because it's the, it seems like this anachronism to invade over land with tanks. It's, no, that's what happened in history. But no, that isn't. And, and of all the reasons that's a shocking thing to be happening in 2022, I think there's a component of it just seems so anachronistic. Like, who does that? Like, like the, the modern conflict, modern conflicts are, are more often cyber based for a reason because it, we have a modern world of trade where that's where wealth is, is exchanged between countries. And at least I think that cyber warfare is going to be more of the future. And I think that's where a lot of people were thinking theft of intellectual property and trade secrets and things like that. So to actually see tanks and boots roll into a roll across a, a muddy national boundary and they're raising flags and in, in the places yeah. that they conquer yeah. when the ukraines can get it back it is it's yeah, absolutely it. that's where the parallel to world war ii yeah. and the invasion of poland starts for mm-hmm. me to be honest with you it's almost like we're back in 1939 yeah, and that comparison has been made in the discussion of what the appropriate response is. Do we, it's so easy and it's tempting to, to compare people to Hitler, but the, the appeasement argument is similar. The argument in, the, in World War II of appeasement, oh, just, it's not worth another world war, he'll, he'll stop. That's exactly the same argument we're having today. And, and to say nothing of the fact that one of the made up reasons for invading Ukraine was to free it from the Nazis. I mean, that like when I saw that headline come up, I was like, I think I was actually trying to make sense of this old German document I had. I'm like looking at German Nazi documents from the 1930s on this screen, and then on this screen, I see Nazis come up again in 2022. It's just I don't, I can't really even put into words how jarring that is. Look at the line of succession of the Soviet Union to Russia to today. It's in the U.S. We have relatively short time scales. The, the observation is that China has a hundred year long plan. And in the U.S. we have four year long plans. Yeah. And it seems like Russia is somewhere in the middle where, where they're, they're, they don't forget. 
and they they uh, don't forget that's a big excuse for hitler when he started world war ii he invaded poland it was the treaty of versailles he thought that germany was got the really short end of the stick and he wanted to prove and get all of his power back and his people's power back but then it turned into this whole we need to have the aryan race dominance of the world it's like where the hell did that come from but yeah yeah and it's a slippery slope and it's very scary. Yeah, and and I and, and on a slight tangent, like on my this everything I've said about my family until this point has been my mom's side. But my dad's side, I recently found some documents showing that my great grandfather was born in Chernigov, Ukraine in eighteen thirty. Mm. And that is a connection that is so far away that I really would never have cared or have had no emotional contact with or or connection with until Russia invaded Ukraine two weeks ago. Mm. And I I can't imagine that, that I have to imagine that people with such remote connections are also suddenly feeling a little flame ignite of at least connections. It's hard to, hard to, to deeply care about the history of something you're not connected to in some remote way. But so it's just fascinating to feel this connection to both sides of, from both sides of my family to both to different parts of this sort of multi-century long conflict slash situation. I guess it's even, it goes back to the 19th century. If you think about Germany pre-World War One, and then the, none, of, none of this happens in a vacuum. I mean, vacuum. I mean, it really reminds me of how like when I became a parent, there's the obvious like immediate emotional impact of seeing your baby for the first time. But what I wasn't prepared for was when a family member sent me the updated family tree. And suddenly I wasn't at the bottom of it anymore. Mm-hmm. I was just one of 50 people. And my son was at the bottom. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah, I guess I'm just the chain. I'm just a little part of this. I spent my whole life until this moment thinking it was all about me, but it, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that seeing, stops? That's a bummer. Yeah. And then seeing get myself get bumped up a level. Oh, I'm just all one right. of these many people. Note to self, so, don't have kids. I want to stay number one. I'm, my kids are, I'm, I'm told you get some of that freedom back when they get a little older. So I might be getting there. <laughs> you mean 18 when they move out? From what I hear, it's young in the earlier teens, once they start to have their own interests. Oh, you ask my parents, that's not true at all. They were like, my mom never slept. She was always just so worried about me. <laughs> that was yeah. a good kid. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. Hey, you know what? There's a sub story there for you about feeling qualified to have kids that I'm sure could Mm. have some interesting discussion. It's at the same time, it's the most frightening thing, but also the most universal thing that anyone can become a parent, but everyone is terrified. I won't fail you. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be. But anyway, so yeah, all, all of this connects to, to the meaning of the film, which the, the various interpretations of this German law over time at different generations. And the, the oldest person we interviewed, one of the actual survivors, someone who was put in a camp and then death marched to another and then liberated and then went to communist Yugoslavia. And then it finally got to the U.S. From his point of view, he wanted nothing to do with Germany at any point, even though he was the one most affected by Germany. Mm -hmm. Because when he was first taken, he was so young, he had no clue what it meant to be German anyway. Mm -hmm. And so for him, his perspective is, I have nothing to do with Germany. Sure, I was born there, but that really doesn't matter to him. And then the, the next generation down, the gentleman whose father built one of the, the roads at one of the camps, there's a real, there seems to be something shared among this, the, the descendants of the survivors themselves. Having, growing up, seeing their parents, the survivors, deal or not deal with everything they went through and how that affected their upbringing. Um, so that's been a series of really interesting interviews. And one of the other inter- people we interviewed, his, his grandparents did not survive. And his father, the father's goal in getting their citizenship back was 
to get what they could from Germany to offset what was taken from them, which could never be enough, obviously. That's universal. Nobody argues that giving citizenship back makes up for this. You know? yeah, yeah. Nobody argues that. But still, there's what appealed to me most is that this is a nation, Germany, that is, that actually has walked the walk or walked the talk about actually regretting something it did. And that is rare in human history. And, and providing something, not just money, but providing something symbolic and practical, but still pretty symbolic as a sort of olive branch or, or at least a bare minimum to the family members who were affected by this. And you could argue that Germany wants to bring back, wants to, wants to increase immigration. Or, or there's all kinds of domestic policy reasons why you, you might want to invite people who are descendants of your former citizens back. I'm not naive enough to think there aren't uh, purely pragmatic. Yeah, what's in it for reasons. them? Yeah. Yeah, but still, that, still, it's rare that a nation codifies into its constitution a regret mm-hmm. for something it did. And a way of of expressing that to the descendants in, as as far into the future as, as they want. There's no number of generations removed that suddenly takes it away. At least not now. It is. It, I have thought sometimes what happens when all the World War II survivors are gone. I have wondered what that that's when it will really pass from living history to just history. But then I think whole new generations of people are going to be educated on World War II because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yep. And it would be nice if that's if it didn't take that to get people educated, but it, if it's a silver lining, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's something I don't know. I just finished a book, The Dressmakers of Auschwitz, and mm-hmm. it was about something about the camp that I had no idea and other camps, mm-hmm. but they did have dressmakers that actually made clothing for wow. Nazis and their family members. Wow. And the author of that, and her name escapes me. The author's name is L.J. Adlington. And truly, it's an amazing read about the true story of the women who sewed to survive is what the the tagline is but they use their sewing skills that they developed before the holocaust to literally survive auschwitz it's a harrowing incredible tear jerking heart-wrenching so many adjectives story if you are at all interested in the Holocaust and what happened. This is a really untold part of it that I, I've never encountered before, before seeing this in the airport. And I was like, what? They had dressmakers? Pick it up, read it. It's incredible. But she interviewed the last living person who was a dressmaker at Auschwitz. Wow. And she has since passed, but mm. the amazing firsthand story that mm. she was able to tell was horrifying, incredible. And it's, it, yeah, just an incredible part of history that if she wasn't alive 10 years ago, we wouldn't have. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, yeah, the whole like living history to now just history written down. It's a very crazy thing. Yeah. I think you saw our trailer. So you saw yeah. a, a bit of the interview with the older gentleman who was in two different camps and even the fabric what what no one in my family realized until we started doing this research was that in germany my family was in the fabric trade and had factories that made garments and one of the reasons we think why my great-grandfather was spared in the first place why they bothered to to put him in a camp until he agreed to sell the company to the nazis for pennies on the dollar was because it was a way for them to keep producing uniforms. So it's entirely possible that my, my family or my you know, ancestral family's company was used to produce Nazi uniforms after oh, yeah. they were kicked out. And that may well be still 
to be found in the archives of Germany. But Wow, you'll have to let yeah. me know if you do find that. It's absolutely fascinating. They used to take the inmates' clothing uh, from them, and they yeah. had them all stockpiled in this place they called Canada, which wasn't uh, actually Canada, of course. Uh, um, but they would go, the dressmakers would go and have like their outings to go and pick the best of them to remake into wow. garments for the Nazis. It's just disgusting beyond all measure. Yeah, yeah and so disturbing... What particularly disturbs me about it is the note is, is the record keeping mm. is very useful in that it lets us a hundred years later almost learn what happened. But to keep such meticulous records of horrific things is, is chilling. Now, at the same time, there's so many other horrific events in history for which there are no records, and one one hesitates to say that's a shame, but. One of the more unexpected, I'm not even going to apply a value judgment to it, but one of the unexpected outcomes of, of the, the Nazi level of organization, such as it was, that we have these dark records of everything from what you're saying to detailed records of how they basically pressured my family into selling their factory for like pennies on the dollar. Just, I don't, I don't know. And, and again, it, it's even for me, as this being my family history, it, it's easy. It's tempting almost to leave it in the past. Yeah. But then Russia invades Ukraine again, Ukraine. And you're like, oh, this never actually ended. This power play between East and West is probably oversimplifying it. But power play between great powers that started you could argue you could argue it was the treaty of versailles or you could argue it was even earlier it, it's not only not over but it's it was just a little quiet for most of my life oh you know, god that's my, a since, harrowing since way I to look a, at it since i was a teenager to now it was just a little quiet and of course in america we have much shorter time scales of i'm not sure what to call it time scale attempt shorter attention spans and shorter national level planning it's hard for any federal agency to make a plan more than four years long but like yeah. I said earlier, that we're the anomaly there. The ancient empire, they're much better at long-term planning. Yeah, I, I do hope that if this expands beyond Ukraine, which I fear that it would, if it's conquered, that the U.S. wouldn't wait for another Pearl Harbor to actually get involved. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. We have... Most of the other countries there are NATO and, and are NATO members. And oh, that's right. We have that. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. The thing about World War II is that you had the worst, you had the least stable arrangement. You had humiliated, devastated Germany, and you didn't have a, an effective alliance that you didn't have a, a unified front against global you know, ambitions like that. This is all very oversimplified, but. Yeah. But in theory, what NATO does is provide a very good reason not to be aggressive and, and, and create incentives for economic competition instead of physical competition. So far, Russia seems to be, and this is just me armchair, armchairing here, but seems to be avoiding direct contact with NATO. Yeah. And also, but it has also unified and strengthened NATO in a way I would never have expected. Europe has never been this united in 2000 years. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, they're all, like, because this invasion is just so jarring and bizarre, it's like all the countries of Europe, even Switzerland is like taking a stand and they didn't even take a stand against Hitler. Like, it's the thing, yeah. like Switzerland is the most neutral. Yeah. So what Putin has accomplished is uniting Europe in a way that's never happened since, it, since human beings evolved. And will, will that make things better or worse in the short term or the long term? I guess we'll find out. No. Yeah. I don't know. What, what apparently what Ukrainian media is reporting is that Putin is, has cancer and is immunocompromised, which explains his bizarre 20-foot-long conference tables that you see on the and is terminally ill and is acting like a desperate man 
who has one chance left to, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's true. It's tempting to, it, it would explain why he has literally sits 30 feet away from anybody and why he looks a little ill. But again, it, there's so many layers and so much that none of us could possibly know that it, I have to stop myself from overanalyzing. Yeah, that's a really interesting rabbit hole. And I'm almost yeah. like, obviously he's not the most attractive person, but he, has he looked not ill before? <laughs> I don't well, know. He, he, used to, he used to look- He's like very pale. He used to look strong. Oh. Like not young, but strong for his age. And now he doesn't, he just looks his age. But again, that's such a surface level observation. That, so just to be pointless in the grander attempt to understand what's happening. Yeah. 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 And there are, there, there are, yeah. But what's so odd to me is, is how easily the conversation about World War II citizenship laws flows neatly into this conflict in the world today. And I hope that, and I could never have predicted that obviously when we started the film, but if that raises the visibility of this history, I'm, I guess that's good. <laughs> it, it, it's not good. The, the event is not good, but if it gets people looking at the history more and thinking about it more, that's a good thing. It's an analytical approach to history, right? Like history is, it doesn't stay in the past. No. And, and there's this great historian that I read on Facebook who says, to quote some, another historian that, that said that history is never in the past because we always look at it through today's lens. Yeah. And that, that until the Ukraine, until the invasion, that always seemed, oh, that's a nice soundbite. But then to suddenly see this thing I've been working on for two years completely transform in meaning and relevance overnight. It's, oh, that's a really wise that's a really wise perspective. And so here really we are. So, so here we so, are. <laughs> and, and it really animates my, my efforts, despite still not being qualified to do this, because now I have even more reason to tell the story. And, I, I know, as, as if you needed more yeah. reason, but yeah, right, now you have right. it. Yeah. It's a reason that I wish wasn't happening, but it's... Yeah, it's gone from history to social studies. Oh, man. I forgot about social studies, but yeah, it's uh, I don't very, know if they still call true. it that now, but I mean, like, it's really a current event. Yeah, probably more of that. I have one more question on this sure. um, for you, because it sparked my curiosity when you said that mm. your grandparents were just so excited to be in America that they didn't even mm. speak German anymore, and then that that a concentration camp survivor gentleman who ended up in Yugoslavia did the death march, mm -hmm. everything, and he just didn't want to talk about it. Do you feel like a lot of these descendants of German mm -hmm. uh, citizenship, do they even care that this is an option? Um, well, so... So the people we've talked to extensively are self-selecting group. Uh -huh. You know, if, if someone doesn't care, I might be, I will be lucky for them to tell me they don't care and they don't want to talk about it. So the people that we've spoken to either fully interviewed or just set up some, just made their acquaintance. Like they care enough to sit down and talk about it. Even if their ultimate conclusion is that it's not a big deal, but there's probably many more people who, frankly, there are people that don't know that don't care and don't know. And they don't know they don't know about it. So they might care, but they don't know. And it's hard to estimate that. But what I have found is that pretty much anyone remotely connected to, to Jewish history or family does not know about this and was intrigued that it exists. And sadly, my mom cannot remember where she learned about it. I keep hoping she'll remember because I, I think that'd be really important. But for her, particularly to not have heard about it in the six decades since her adolescence, when she might have and remembered it, having being the direct descendants of two refugees, like it's not being marketed very well to use our current terminology. You think that the, the descendants of refugees would have at least heard of it before 2020. So, that, so that's actually a lot of what we want to interview people in Europe about. There mm -hmm. are people working on that exact thing in Europe and I want to talk to them and I want to go to the German government and talk to them. And, but so to get back to your question, I have no idea how many people care, would care if they knew about it. Mm -hmm. But like your genuine interest when you heard about it from my, my email, people 
that the concept, I think what it comes down to is the concept of a nation acknowledging regret in such a meaningful, symbolic way is unusual. And I think that makes people think. And that's a good thing, because I maybe bring it all together. Like, to me, what's ultimately most meaningful about this is that nations can atone, or at least can, can try, and people can, that, that a nation is just a bunch of people. And that, to me, it's a very hopeful message that the nation of Germany, so soon after the Holocaust, could actually enshrine in its constitution something like regret. And... Um, I, I guess I'd like to live in a world where that's not so unusual. And maybe a future world will look a little more like that. At, at least it's, it's not something most people know about. And I find that to be, that makes me a little sad because the history of our world is, is so much conflict that just is unresolved and then becomes the next conflict, like what we're seeing in, in Russia. Yeah. So, and it's just brushed under the rug and bygones yeah, and bygones. And, yeah. yeah. And then people get mad a generation later and try to fix it by taking up. So that's what this is all about. And despite not being, I hope to make myself qualified to do this by doing it once unqualified. How's and that? I think you're well on your way. Thank it's, you. It sounds very promising. I'm so excited about it. It's been, it's definitely been an hour. I do have one more question. Sure. Yeah. Okay. For those aspiring film producers, you touched on it a little mm -hmm. bit, but can you put it in a bow for what advice that you have? Sure. Do not start by trying to make a feature-length documentary as your <laughs> first project. Pick something small, make a YouTube channel or something. There's no shortage of, of, of skilled, there's no shortage of skilled people on the technical side of filming and editing. And, and if you can find if you could find a group of such people and find an issue that matters to all of you, then I think you might be on your way to doing something for relatively low budget to start with. And that being a major hurdle for most people trying something new. But again, if it's something that matters to you, it's not like it's worth trying and even failing. I found that over and over again in my life. Think about what matters to you and like your podcast or, or it has to be a passion project because it is a lot of work, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. It doesn't feel like work because I don't know. It just comes from somewhere deep inside. So that's it. Don't start with a feature length film. Make friends with video videographers. And try to find something that, that you all share. I would, but I, I love would it. Anyone. Maybe look to history because history is your present. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think everyone, especially now, can find something that they connect, they share with others. And, and it is a good time to try to make films. At least this is what I'm told from film industry people. It is it's a good time to try to sell things to the streaming networks. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really good all, to know. Because there's so many of them and they're all desperately competing for content. So. Oh man, the original content that's coming out of Netflix and Hulu is top notch. I'm impressed. So that's, yeah, that's, it's yeah, really I fun to space be to be in. I think I would 100% watch your documentary like three times in a row. Yeah. It's, Thank you. I'm so excited for it. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. Likewise. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best. Truly. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, Yowza, what a conversation that was. I don't know if you could tell, but I am really interested in World War II history. It was a big reason that I really wanted to interview Jeff, and I'm so excited that I was able to. The documentary film he is producing is called Article 116, that is Article 116, Beyond Citizenship, and he talked all about it in this. I don't know if we said the name, so keep an eye out for it. This was such an incredible conversation. I am so thankful that you made it to the end. I did not ask where you could find him, find Jeff, but he is on LinkedIn, Jeff Nozanov, and that is Jeff, J-E-F-F-N-O-S-A-N-O-V is his last name, and I'm sure that if you had any questions about this at all or you would like to get in touch with him, that you could do so there. His Instagram is sparse, so I won't share that, but definitely will his LinkedIn, and you can get in touch with him then. Or you could, of course, get in touch with me, and I'm happy to put you in touch with him if you're very excited about the film. And especially if you're looking for maybe any advice 
on making your own documentary film. He is, as he says, brand new to it, but he's way more qualified than he thinks he is. That's just the name of this game now, isn't it? So where can you find me? Again, my name is Courtney Heater. I am on Instagram at YNQPod. That's Y-N as in Nancy QPod. On Twitter at YNQPodcast. On TikTok at YNQPod. I might just stop saying TikTok until I actually get that up and going. It's so hard. I need somebody to help me. And I also have an email address ynqpod at gmail.com and a beautiful website, you're not qualified podcast.com. Please get in touch with me if you feel like you are a good fit for this show. I would love, love, love to talk to you. Or if you know of somebody that's a good fit, please send them my way. I would love to try to pick their brain and see if they want to chat with me for an hour on the record. You know, no pressure. So this episode covered a lot of really heavy things. I am by no means an expert on any of this stuff. I'm by no means a war historian or a war expert, and I can't tell you exactly what's going on here in the Ukraine. I can't tell you exactly what Hitler was thinking when he started World War II. I just am passionate about learning about it, so sometimes I get really heated and I just spout off. But... For trivia, I thought it would be kind of interesting to chat about the Treaty of Versailles. This is something that I was not very familiar with until I started really digging into the World War II history. And the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1919. It was a peace document signed at the end of World War I by the Allied and the Associated Powers and by Germany. And it was signed in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, France. June 28th, 1919. And then it took effect January 10th, 1920. So the reason that I said Hitler felt basically attacked by the Treaty of Versailles and he felt like it was unfair, Germany got the unfair advantage, they were at a disadvantage from this, that is because... The population and territory of Germany was reduced by about 10% by the treaty. And the war guilt clause of the treaty deemed Germany the aggressor in the war. And they consequently made Germany responsible for making reparations to the allied nations in payment for the losses and damage they had sustained in the war. That is a really interesting part of history and... I find the juxtaposition between it being the end peace treaty of World War I that eventually fueled another war. It is fascinating and dark. I got this information from Britannica. Also, fun fact, do you guys remember, or maybe this was like a 90s thing, but I remember actually looking up things in those huge Britannica books that were just massive dictionaries of information. They were just, you know, full of stuff like this. Like you could look this up in the physical Britannica and they have a website now for Britannica.com and that's where I found this information. So just uh, look that on up if you're more interested in it. Uh, Okay. I am going to sign this off now. This isn't too far over an hour. I did pretty good with this one but i am so so thankful you are here thank you very much for being here and i am looking forward to seeing you next week all right guys enjoy your irish holiday happy saint patrick's day and i will see you next thursday bye